Good morning, ladies. We are in Matthew chapter 18, and last week um, Barb gave us an amazing summary of the first 17 chapters of Matthew, the chapters that we studied um, last winter and spring. So I encourage you, if you haven't had a chance um, to listen to it on the podcast or if you um, weren't here last week, go back and listen to it. It, um, it really was a, an amazing summary. And so today we're continuing and we're picking up where we left off. Uh, which is Matthew 18, and that is the fourth major discourse. So it's the fourth teaching or sermon of Jesus in the book of Matthew. And it's a teaching where Jesus will present principles to follow in the Christian life. Principles that will not be hard for us to understand, but instead ones that are simple, yet they will be painfully clear. So if you'd like to open up your Bibles, if you haven't already, to chapter 18, and we'll go through it together. And we'll see here the big question, who is the greatest? Right in verse 1, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They might have looked around, is it me? Is it him? Is it one of us? Which disciple is more important than the other? Is it Peter? Is it James? Or is it John? Could it be bothering them that, as we saw in chapter 17, those three disciples had just witnessed Jesus' transfiguration on the high mountain? Does this make them more important? The disciples knew of Jesus' power, and they recognized him as Messiah and King. So who, Jesus, who is going to have the highest position in your kingdom? The smartest one? The strongest? The most influential? Really, what were they thinking? And what answer were they expecting from Jesus? The kingdom of heaven, it was not of, these, of this earth, not of this world, but they thought of it as a temporal kingdom. They were thinking with a worldly view. In Mark 9, 34, it says, they, the disciples, had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And in Luke 9, 46, it says, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Their attitude, really, it stunk. And it was all wrong. Their prideful selves were coming out. So the question, who is the greatest? And as we look into this chapter, we'll see how Jesus answers this question. And as we do that, we'll pose some questions of our own. I've put them up on the board here. In verses 1 to 6, we'll ask ourselves, who do we need to become like? In verses 7 to 9, what do we need to avoid? In verses 10 to 14, how much do we care for others? 15 to 20, how do we respond to sin? And verses 21 to the end, our final question will be, how quick are we to forgive? So let's just take a moment to pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time where we can open up your word and study it together. And we pray that as you speak to us, may we have receptive ears and receptive hearts. And as we look at answering all these questions, help us not to only understand what the answer is in words, but that we would have changed hearts to be obedient to you, to your word, and to follow your commands that you clearly instruct us with. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So question one, who do we need to become like? Let's look at verses one to four. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, 
Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus answers their question with an object lesson. He brings a child into the picture to define greatness. A child, a little one, a little one who in that time was viewed much differently and treated much differently than children are viewed today. In today's society, children are important. We care for them, we value them, we give them the best, we treat them well, we involve them with everyday things in our lives. But in those days, children were not important. They were to be seen, but not heard. And sometimes they weren't even noticed. There was no greatness about them. Yet here's Jesus picking up this little child, this little unimportant, powerless child, and saying, you must turn and become like children, or you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, and you need to humble yourself like a child to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You need to become like children, he said. But what are children like? Well, let's think about it. They're small, simple, needy, and helpless. They need food, clothes, instructions. They need mom and dad to provide things for them, to let them know that they are safe. They are humble, trusting, and dependent. They need help to get into bed, to do their homework, to make their lunch, to balance on their bike without the training wheels, and the list goes on. They know they can't do it alone. They depend on us. And so, Jesus tells them that to enter the kingdom of heaven, you need to turn and become like children. To turn and become, he says, meaning we need to change. Change our ways, our attitude, to become like the little children, the little child who is humble, trusting, and dependent. And in verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child. So humility and dependence, complete dependence on our Heavenly Father, just as a child is completely dependent on others. So greatness is not defined by who we are, where we rank, or what position we hold. It's not defined by how much money we have, by who our relatives are, or how much others think of us. No, greatness is defined by our humility. It's an attitude of the heart. So question one, who do we need to become like? We need to turn to change and become like a little child. Have we humbled ourselves before God? Do we depend on him alone for all things, trusting him with childlike faith? We are to be humble, not to think ourselves as great, but to look to God, trusting in him alone, dependent on him to carry us through everything, dependent on him to be our strength, our protector, and our guide, and only then will we enter the kingdom of heaven. So we must change. We must be humble. And Jesus continues in verse 5 and 6, telling them that they must welcome, love, and protect others. Let's read verses 5 and 6. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck 
and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Verse 5, one such child, meaning one who is like this little child. And in verse 6, and one of these little ones who believe. It's not only referring to little children, but to all those children of God, those who are his followers, who come humbly like a little child, no matter what their age. We are to receive them, welcome them, not ignore them or consider them a burden. We are not to cause Jesus' followers to sin. Jesus tells us in verse 6 that if we cause others to fall, if we entice them, influence them to say or do wrong things, cause them to sin in any way, gossip or slander, it would be better to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. A millstone was not a small stone. It was a huge, giant stone that weighed hundreds of pounds. It was used by the Romans as capital punishment. A millstone would be fastened around the neck, you'd be thrown into the middle of the sea, and you would, be, you would die a horrible death. There was no hope in escaping this type of death. Drowning was inevitable. And so there's no escaping for those who cause believers, his children, to sin, to stumble, to fall away, to be shaken in their faith. Jesus warns that a harsh judgment will come on those who cause one of the little ones who believe in him to sin or to stumble. Sin is harmful, and we need to take it seriously. If we are to honor God, we are to treat his children well, to care, love, protect them, just as he does, and not cause anything to hinder a relationship with God and others. We have a responsibility as Christians to encourage one another and not cause them to stumble. So we must change, we must be humble, and we must welcome, love, and protect. And now we go on to question two. What do we need to avoid? Well, let's look at verses seven to nine. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Jesus goes from talking about love and grace and little children to chopping off hands. It's pretty graphic and gross images of limbs being cut off and eyes being torn out. And we think, what's going on? And then he speaks of temptations, temptations. We're faced with many temptations. We live in a sinful world. But what we do with temptations, what do we do with them when they come? Are we to cut off our foot if we walked into places where we shouldn't have gone? Or tear out our eye if we looked at things that weren't honoring God? No, not literally, no. God doesn't want us to harm our bodies, but he does want us to realize the seriousness of sin in our lives. He wants us to know that we need to go to extraordinary lengths to avoid giving into temptation. If things cause us to sin, cut them off, get rid of them. If a friend or group of friends is causing us to stumble, to cause us to sin, cut them off. 
cut off the relationship? Are they leading us astray, taking us to places we shouldn't go, pulling us away or distracting us from our relationship with God? It's time to leave and break it off. If the internet or social media is causing our eyes to wander and in turn causing us to sin, cut it off. We're to block it out of our lives. Is our phone taking up all our time that we can't make time for anything else and it's hindering our relationship with God? Turn off your phone, put it away. Question two then, what do we need to avoid? It's simple and clear, avoid temptations to sin. Sin is ugly. It isn't our hand or foot or eye that's sinning. Sin comes from the heart. And if we remember back in chapter 3, when John the Baptist was pointing people to repentance, he was calling out for people to turn from their sin. But it was more than that. He was calling out to them to make a change, a complete change. To turn away from sin, but also to turn their life around, to head in the right direction and live differently, having a change of heart, a change of behavior. We need to avoid temptations to sin. We need to have a changed heart and one that desires to avoid things that pull us away from Jesus. We have to think, what's causing us to stumble to sin? Could it be the shows we're watching or the websites we're clicking on? The distractions of all those bings on our cell phone? Could it be the friends we hang out with? Or maybe we're minimizing our sin, thinking they're not that bad. We saw earlier that Jesus warned us that our actions can cause others to stumble, to sin, and now we see how we are responsible for our own sins. As we avoid temptations to sin, we escape the punishment of God and we avoid the deadly consequences of sin. So now let's move on to question three. How much do we care for others? Jesus now tells the disciples a parable of the lost sheep. Let's read verses 10 to 14. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So don't forget the, the question that the disciples had at the very beginning. Who is the greatest? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And remember, it was a pretty selfish, prideful question, one focused and concerned on themselves. But here in these verses that we just read, we see a shepherd who doesn't focus on himself, but instead on one little sheep that has gone astray, a little defenseless sheep. And sheep do that sometimes. I don't know if you've ever seen them or ever studied them or ever read about them, but they wander, they look, they skip, they run, and before you know it, they're in trouble and they need to be rescued. And in verse 10, one of these little ones, again, these little ones refers to God's children, his followers, believers who humbly come to him with childlike faith. And so we shouldn't despise these followers, not treat them wrong or unkindly, but when they are mistreated or neglected, there are angels entrusted to watch over them, sent by the Father. 
And this story, when I was reading it about the, the sheep, it just reminded me of a time when we were driving up to Mount Forest one summer morning. It was a relaxing drive um, in the country, Highway 24, I believe it was, taking um, in the beauty of the brilliantly colored leaves. And it was a peaceful drive, so we thought. And in the distance, we spotted a farm, and it was a sheep farm. And there they were, a huge flock of these big fluffy white sheep grazing in the farmer's field. But there was this little one, and um, we spotted it, and it must have found an opening in the gate. And it didn't just wander, look, and skipped. It ran, and then it darted, and, and from a fenced, back to, um, uh, fenced in area in the back, and it headed right to the road, right towards us. And at the last second, it jumped into the ditch, and it started munching away, just like as if, as if it found a buffet or something. And it just stopped. We honked our horn while well, Rick was driving. He honked his horn frantically, and not only because of this one little lost sheep, but because of a bunch of his little friends, they started heading towards us too. And it was such a sight. There was like, it was like full stream coming head on towards us. There was probably only about 20 of them, but it felt like there was about a million of them. So hearing our blasting horn, we saw the farmer come frantically running out. And he took control, and he led them, and he took the little one that was having this buffet lunch, and he led them safely back towards the back of his property, away from the road, away from danger, um, back home to where the rest of them were, where they should have been. His sheep, you know, we felt at that time, and, and I think about it now, his sheep were really valuable to him. The little one in the ditch, as well as all the other ones that were following we are valuable to God. When we run and head in the wrong direction, when we wander, when we turn away from him, he is concerned because we are lost. And he comes and rescues us. We might think that we're a nobody, that nobody loves us, that no one cares about us. We might feel looked down upon, neglected. We are a somebody. You are a somebody. Jesus loves us. He loves you. He cares for us. He cares for you. And when we wander and end up in a ditch, he seeks us out. He desires restoration. And when we come back and when we repent and come home, he rejoices. Jesus died for us. He died for you. And we belong to him. In Isaiah 53, 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is our shepherd. He came down to earth, died a terrible death on the cross, and took on all our sins, providing us forgiveness and righteousness. So how much do we care for others? Do we value each other? Do we love one another? Do we run after a friend, protecting and rescuing them from danger that could be lurking around the corner? Do we rejoice knowing that they have come back home, that they are no longer lost? Sisters, I pray that we would reflect the love of our Savior by pouring out the same love to others. And let's move on now to question four. How do we respond to sin? Let's look at verses 15 to 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you 
that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So there's a problem. We've been offended by another believer. Another brother or sister in Christ has sinned against us. How are we to respond? Well, Jesus plainly outlines a process. He sets out some steps we need to take when dealing with sin in others. Step one, go privately to the person who has offended you. That means you don't go to anyone else. You don't go around gossiping, telling others that they, what they have done. You don't let bitterness fester in your heart. You go directly to them. You be open and loving to them, letting them know how you've been hurt, how you've been offended, and perhaps what they've done to cause you to sin or to stumble. And in doing all this, it's in a loving, humble, and gentle way. And I'm not saying this is gonna be easy. Initially, it'll probably feel like the hardest thing you've ever done. But the purpose for us going to them is for them to recognize and repent from sin, to bring, to bring full repentance and reconciliation. And with this in mind, taking the hard giant step is so worth it. After we go to them and we try to deal with their sin, they can respond in one of two ways. One, they might say, yes, you know, you're right. I'm sorry, please forgive me. Bam, it's done. You're probably crying and hugging and kissing and, and you, you know, forgiveness is there, we forgive them. Or two, um, or on the other hand, you might, they might say, no, they won't admit to anything. They won't confess. They might not believe us or care what we're saying. There is a hardened heart. And so this is where we go to step number two. In verse 16, you get help and take one or two others and go to them again. So you take one or two mature believers, whether they be elders, pastors, or wise mature believers that understand the issue and can help listen and give wise counsel. You gently approach them and address the issue. Again, the purpose is for them to recognize and repent from sin to bring full repentance and reconciliation, not to shame them in front of others. They might say, yes, please forgive me. Well, praise the Lord. We forgive them and we begin to seek reconciliation, restoring our relationship with them and their relationship with the Lord. If their heart is still hardened and they still refuse to listen or to confess or to admit their sin, they refuse to repent. Well, we're on to step number three. Step number three is found in verse 17. You tell it to the church. It has now become a matter of church discipline. Go to the church and seek their help. This isn't the time to put them in front of everyone and put them on a stand and shame them. This isn't a time for those present at the meeting to start a gossip chain. Look what so-and-so did. Did you hear that? Wow, can you believe it? Well, I never. 
No, again, the purpose is not for that. It's for them to recognize and repent from sin, to bring full repentance and reconciliation. It's a time for the church family to see and understand the seriousness of sin, to call it out and to pray together for this individual and for the situation. It's a time for the church family to help restore them in a humble, loving, respectful way. And if they still refuse, well, Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Meaning, treat them like an unbeliever. Look at the way they're acting. They are not repenting. They're not seeking reconciliation. They don't have a changed heart. Therefore, since they're not acting like a believer, they have broken fellowship with the body of Christ. They have removed themselves from the community of believers. We can't recognize them as our brother or sister in Christ because they are doing, what they are doing does not reflect a changed heart. And in doing so, Jesus reassures the disciples that this reflects God's will for the church. And Jesus also reassures them that he is with them in the process. As we see in verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So the answer for question four, how do we respond to sin? We are to reach out to our brother or sister and not give up on them. We are to take the necessary steps. Ladies, is there someone who has offended you? Is there someone who has hurt us, who has offended us? Is there someone who is spreading things about us that aren't true? Is our relationship with them broken? We are to go first to them. We don't phone five people to tell them what's going on, who in turn will tell another five people who might then change the story just a little or just a lot, and well, you know where that's going. Instead, we are to go first to the person who has hurt us. Then if needed, we get help from others, from other wise believers. And finally, if the person is still unrepented, it's to be taken to the church. We are to love them right to the end. Be full of grace and forgiveness, looking to mend the broken relationship in our life, always ready to welcome them back. Even after all steps have been taken and even if they come and repent, and if they come and repent, we are to be there with open arms, ready to receive them. And so finally, we're looking at question number five. How quick are we to forgive? Peter asks in verse 21, Lord, how often will my brother sin, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Peter was being generous. The rabbi says you only need to forgive three times. That was the Jewish practice. After the fourth time, you don't need to forgive. So seven times sounded pretty good. But what does Jesus say? In verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. 70 times seven, 490 times. So basically you just keep on forgiving over and over again. There's no limits. And Jesus tells the disciples the parable of an unforgiving servant. Verses 23 to the end. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. 
When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payments to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him and saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had, had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So here's this servant and he owes the king 10,000 talents. I looked up what 10,000 talents would be equivalent to today and it was anywhere between millions if not billions of dollars. So basically and realistically an amount that the servant would never be able to repay in his lifetime. Yet he pleads with his master not to sell him or his family, that he would repay him, which everyone knew that was not possible. And the master, he has pity on him. He has compassion on him and shows him mercy by forgiving him this enormous debt. The parable goes on to say that this servant then ran into one of his servants who owed him a measly hundred denarii, which today would be a few hundred dollars. He grabbed him by the neck and demanded the money. The fellow servant pleaded and promised to pay. But no, he had no pity on him. But instead, he had him thrown into jail until he would repay it. The servant himself had been forgiven big time. He himself had been forgiven a debt that he could never repay. Yet he himself had refused to offer forgiveness. We ourselves have been forgiven big time. We ourselves have been forgiven a huge debt. God has freely forgiven us a great debt of sin, the ultimate debt, a debt we could never repay. Jesus paid the debt for our sins with his life, a debt that he didn't owe. How much more should we forgive others? Do we forgive people who wrong us? Or do we refuse to forgive? We have had forgiveness extended to us on the cross. Should we not be extending forgiveness to others? So question five, how quick are we to forgive? In Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Do we understand the forgiveness we've been given? If we do, then we would understand that God expects us to be quick to forgive. In Matthew 6, 15, Jesus taught, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. 
And here in verses 35, 33 to 35, Jesus says, And you should not, and should, sorry, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all the debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is serious. This is Jesus talking. There is judgment on those who are unwilling to forgive others. This is so hard, so I say, dear sisters, let's check our hearts. Do we have an issue with someone, a grudge, bitter feelings? Are we feeling anger or resentment? We can't let it eat at us. We can't go around making it worse for everyone involved. We need to go and settle it and make it right, forgiving one another. And when you do forgive, we don't bring it up again. We don't dwell on it. We have offered forgiveness, and if we need to forgive them again, then we need to remember 70 times 7. Colossians 3.15 And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Who is the greatest? As followers of Christ, we are defined by how we love and care for others. We are defined by how we treat others. We are to be humble, looking to God, trusting in Him alone, and dependent on Him. As followers of Christ, we must be aware of sin, of sin in our own lives and of sin in the lives of others. We are responsible to make sure that we don't stumble and that we don't cause others to stumble or fall away. We are responsible to help those who have fallen into sin, to help pick them up and bring them back into fellowship with Christ and with each other. As followers of Christ, we must be quick to forgive, just as God our Father is full of grace, love, and forgiveness, so should we. Do we share the same love and care for others? Do we run after those that are wandering and in danger, rejoicing when they are in the right place and safe? Perhaps you are wandering. Have you wandered off, not realizing how far you've gone? You feel lost, alone, in danger of your surroundings? You realize your need of someone to guide you? We have a good shepherd who loves us, who cares for us, and wants to rescue and protect us. Jesus is ready to pick you up and carry you, to rescue you and take you home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need you, and we thank you for being our shepherd. We fail you so many times that you are there to pick us up, to carry us and care for us and welcome us, the little ones, back into your loving arms, into your fold. We pray that you change our hearts, Lord, and we pray that you help us to grow, to be humble servants. May we be people that are there for others, loving, caring as you are. May we be people that deal not only with our sin, but with the sin of others. May we not be people that harbor bitterness, resentment, and anger, but putting ourselves above others, but instead, may we be tender-hearted and quick to forgive. And Lord, may the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>